0: Who's the criminal's ideal ransomware target? And could lessons learned from plane hijackings help fight ransomware? These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Anna Delaney. Ransomware operations seem to come and go, but never more than since the summer, following a string of high-profile hits that sparked a furious reaction from the Biden administration. But have these attackers really exited the scene? Joining me to discuss is executive editor Matthew Schwartz. So, Matt, if a ransomware operation says it's gone or otherwise appears to be defunct, can it ever be said to have truly died?
1: Well, Anna, I would say the short answer, barring everyone in the operation having been identified and then getting arrested, would be no. And unfortunately, that's because ransomware is this vibrant, thriving criminally oriented ecosystem that involves a whole bunch of different kinds of people. You've got the administrators or the developers who will run these specific operations and typically they'll be recruiting affiliates who take the ransomware that the developer has created and use it to infect victims and then share in the proceeds at an agreed sort of split I think a 70% for the affiliate, 30% for the developer is still pretty common. Even if a ransomware operation shuts down, announces it's been shut down, or really does leave, all of these affiliates are still in play and they'll go work with a different ransomware operation or possibly even spin up their own. So just because someone says they're coming and going, it doesn't really seem to be having a big impact on the quantity of ransomware that we are seeing.
0: So what about groups such as Revil and DarkSide, which appear to have gone dark?
1: Yes, so as we've discussed previously, DarkSide does appear now to have been spun out as Black Matter. Security experts have looked at the crypto-locking malware and the cryptocurrency wallets, and they've said this is basically just DarkSide, which hit the Colonial Pipeline back in May, sparking a furious reaction from the Biden administration. And um, so they've come back now as black matter. Now it looked like Revel, also known as Senator Kibi, might have exited. It went dark in May and nobody knew why. The White House said it wasn't us, but we hope they're gone. Unfortunately, this week, Revel's data leak site came back online. What's happened here isn't clear. I'm not sure if the rival administrators maybe sold their list of victims to someone else and they're attempting to cash in, or it's possible that they're just getting their operations up and running again after having a little bit of a break. So again, we don't have a lot of visibility necessarily into everything that happens or doesn't happen. We're having to deduce based on what we see. So we're deducing the victims based on who gets posted to these data leak sites. We're attempting to deduce the operators based on who can be traced to certain kinds of attacks or which operations issue so-called press releases on their tour-based data leak sites claiming this or trumpeting that. So you have to take it all with a big grain of salt, but it does appear to still be extremely vibrant, thriving, and racking up lots of victims.
0: So Matt, you recently wrote about the ideal ransomware victim. What is the profile of an ideal ransomware victim?
1: Right, what's the secret to not getting to be uh, the victim of the next big ransomware attack? Well, Anna, it's a problem you and I won't have because it tends to be US-based large businesses with at least $100 million in revenue and not operating in the healthcare or education sectors. And preferably, for which there is easy remote access via remote desktop protocol, i.e., RDP, or else VPN credentials. So those were some commonalities found by Israeli threat intelligence from Kila, which has put out a new report. And I just thought that was fascinating to see what these commonalities are. I mean, if you are an organization in that bucket, so to speak, you know, good luck. Obviously, you need to have your defenses in place. But it is also a reminder that, you know, the $100 million and up in annual revenue is because these groups wanna hit as big a target as possible, seeking the biggest possible ransom payoff if the victim pays. They're also going for the U.S. because they see more of these victims being located there and they're avoiding education and healthcare because they perceive them to have very little in the way of funds to potentially pay the ransomware group times money with cybercrime. That's the case whether you're wielding ransomware, some other form of extortion, hitting anyone with a banking Trojan. You want to do as little as possible to make as most money possible with the minimum amount of risk in the quickest amount of time. And that's just what we continue to see with these ransomware attacks.
2: You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news.
0: Now, here's an interesting one. Could lessons from plane hijackings help fight ransomware? Well, here's Jeremy Kirk, Managing Editor for Security and Technology, who draws upon the similarities between them and whether we can make ransomware a rare event anytime soon.
3: Ransomware is the result of a criminal blending of technology's wonders, networking and encryption. It's a modern-day implementation of extortion, a crime as old as time. The Atlantic Council, which is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank, contends lessons from fighting extortion schemes such as plane hijackings could help fight ransomware. Between the late 1960s and early 1970s, aircraft hijackings surged. It took years of collective work by government policymakers and airlines to deter attacks. Emma Schroeder is Assistant Director with the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. She says lessons from the past could be applicable to the cyber realm.
4: Kind of part of a larger effort that we're trying to do, kind of the unconventional cyber approaches, taking lessons from different periods of history um, and different areas and seeing what, what we pull into cyber Um, You know, it's a relatively new domain, and there's so much literature out there on, on other areas and other challenges.
3: Plane hijackings and ransomware differ, of course, but there are broad stroke similarities. For example, the opportunity cost is low. A single weapon may be enough to commandeer a plane, and a single email with malware may open a door to an entire network. Also, attackers need to be successful just one time, while defenders have to always be on guard. Hijackings were reduced by a combination of active and passive measures. Passive measures can include helping organizations improve their overall security, including direct advisory support and financial resources. Also, technology vendors should be pushed to develop more defensible software, the Council says. Although it seems unfathomable today, airports in the late 1960s didn't have metal detectors, the installation of which was a passive measure to catch weapons that may be taken on board. Emma Schroeder again.
4: The, the basic idea there is that passive measures are basically things that you do kind of set the stage. Um, so making sure that you are better prepared, better defended, you have plans in place in case of incidents, you have some sort of training, so you know what to look for, what to recognize, you know, making it costlier for a potential attacker to target you.
3: Active measures are another set of options. One would be identifying the in real life details of those running ransomware gangs and their affiliates, which are the spin-off groups that use the core gangs ransomware tools and support. The U.S. has pursued a name and shame and indict campaign against cyber intelligence agents in China and Russia, and there's no reason that those forces couldn't be applied to ransomware. The indictments often reveal breathtaking insight into the deep forensics and investigation powers of the U.S. government. Trey Herr is director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative. He says that identifying actors, leveraging sanctions, and travel bans can make the spoils of ransomware harder to enjoy.
2: I, mean,
1: I guess this is another one of those places where we tend to think very one
3: dimensionally, something was done to me
1: in cyber, I need to do it back to them in cyber. When realistically, you know, these folks have to travel, they want to make use of their money. They want to live well. And there are a lot of ways to put pressure on that.
3: There's a lot going on right now with ransomware at the U.S. government level. The U.S. has made fighting ransomware a priority, elevating the incidents to the same level as terrorism and offering rewards of up to 10 million to identify perpetrators. It's also working to help organizations improve their security. In July, the government launched StopRansomware.gov, which is a website that consolidates resources and guidance from various federal agencies with an aim to uplift security. But still, it's going to be a long haul to make ransomware a rare event. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk.
0: And finally, when we talk about cybersecurity risk management, we often focus on technology, but what about our people and the more silent dangerous risk to them, that being burnout, something we may not always be able to see, but left unmanaged can create serious problems for our workforce. Here's Ian Thornton-Trump, CISO at Cyjax Limited, who describes the particular pressures on security leaders and their teams, and shares strategies to help reduce that stress. Incidentally, this is part of a panel to be aired at our upcoming Virtual London Cybersecurity and Fraud Summit on September 14th and 15th. Be sure not to miss it.
2: I've seen, unfortunately, um, situations where, you know, um, the the blame for a security event is is placed um, unfairly on the security team, um, you know, and then through the the process of sort of discovering what the issues were, what led to the breach, it's really falls into, you know, some sort of failure of of either the technology, the people or the process. And you know, we're willing to say that security is a is a organizational responsibility up until you know there's a security event and then it's the security team's fault. Um, and and I think that's got to massively change. And I just want to say I'm 100 percent behind the mandatory sort of like mental health, mental awareness uh, training, um, because there's there's two things that come out of it. When you lose an individual from your team or because you know, in political maneuverings, um, they're pushed out of the organization, um, you lose institutional knowledge that is difficult to replace. And in a lot of cases, it can set the organization back You know, six months, a year, especially if the person had critical knowledge that wasn't really documented anywhere, um, then you're in a, a really difficult uh, situation. The other thing I think as, as a manager or leader is have a plan to bring in reinforcements. I'm not saying that, you know, you have to spend a million dollars to have a, a consulting firm on, on call, but certainly in the midst of a crisis, legal should have some boilerplate templates for onboarding contractors. HR should have a, a Rolodex of, of folks that perhaps you've engaged previously as contractors within your organization. And, you know, you need to be able to rapidly respond because, you know, IT departments don't have a lot of depth. Um, in terms of like what more they can encounter or what more development or
0: DevSecOps can do. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music's by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time.